0: Thanks very much, Lebanon. Um, If you're a sort of uh, 11 to 15, 16-year-old, and you would like one of these sheets, and you haven't been given one, you could send a parent or someone up to grab one from the back. Ollie's there. There's just a few left back there, Ollie. Um, and do keep Romans 3 open as we look at it together. Now, if you've had an experience like this, I can still remember this experience. I worked out actually it was 35 years later today. 35 years later, I still have the same gut-wrenching feeling when I think about it. It was, the, uh, it was the weekly scripture test with Mr. Waters when I was about 11 years old. Now I used to nail. I used to nail the weekly scripture test with Mr. Waters. It was always out of 25. I'd always score more than 20. I was a scripture test SWAT. Maybe the pastor thing was written on the wall early, but I remember this one because I'm sitting there and uh, Mr. Waters says, "Today is our weekly scripture test." I thought oh no, I've forgotten, I haven't revised, I can't remember a thing, right, and it was the good old days, so you sat with your, your, uh, your arm over your desk, the inkwell here in the corner, and um, Mr. Waters used to read out the questions, 25 questions, I hadn't a clue what was going on, I, you know, I tried to fluff some down the first side, but, but the other side, there was, there was almost nothing on the piece of paper. But being, being the good old days, um, it was, a, it was a, trust was, was in fashion those days. So what happened was Mr. Waters would then read out the answers. And you marked your own sheet. So uh, he read out the answers. Cross, cross, cross. Cross, 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 cross. And then you called out your mark. I got about five. So he, he went around the class, came to me. Formal school. Medellin Jones. 21, please, sir. Um, oh well done I'd like to see your paper (laughs) suddenly you had this experience suddenly there was this enormous tunnel in the classroom up to Mr. Waters' desk and he was sitting there, terrifying at the end of it. And I, I started to sort of shuffle. I mumbled something, shuffling along the tunnel towards Mr. Waters before arriving at his desk and, and giving him the piece of paper sheepishly, still mumbling something else. And he looked down the front side, and I think he, he genuinely thought I'd added it up wrong. And he turned over to the other side of the question answer sheet, which was largely blank, but I'd awarded myself a whole set of ticks. And he just said to me, I can see what you've done. You ever had that feeling? Do you know that feeling? You've been found out, you did it, and there's no escape. You want to try and explain it away, but no words will come. Now, can I tell you this morning, if you have never had that feeling in your life, one day you will. Look at verse 19 of our Bible passage. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. One day, every man, woman, and child who's ever lived will stand before God silent because we will know that we're guilty and there's nothing to say. There's no defense to make. There's no way out. There's no excuse. Now, I don't know what you make of that, but because, let's face it, most of us don't like to admit our, our faults, do we? We're not quick to admit them. We, we don't like being found out. We certainly don't like being accused by someone else. And when we are, we're pretty quick to defend ourselves. We're, we're the sort of yeah, but no, but generation of Vicky Pollard. Do you remember her from Little Britain? Yeah, whatever she's done, there's always a reason. Yeah, but no, but I was tired. Yeah, but no, but Tracy did it first. Yeah, but no, but you've got to understand at my age, it's hard. And you see, in every situation that goes wrong, we're obviously faced with two options. To to accept that we might in in some way be to blame or to explain it away, to to blame someone else, to blame a circumstance. And classically, people say, oh yeah, but no, but I'm only a human being. But but actually, that's not an excuse. And what the Apostle Paul has been doing in in this letter to the Romans over the last few weeks is saying, that's your problem that you are a human being with a human nature. Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. It's around AD 57. And it appears that some of them have lost sight of the fact that they they were the biggest problem in their lives. We've seen Paul tell them in chapter 1, 18 to 32, that rather than living in a world that works, we live in a world under God's wrath, his righteous anger. That's been shown to us because God's given us over to our desires. He takes a humanity that rejects him and says, okay, you want life without me? You get life without me. You can have what you want. And the real world we have today, with with all its mess and pain and disasters, is the world we've made with our desires, a disastrous result then just as um, some people maybe that Paul is is writing to are just nodding approvingly going, oh yeah, yeah, no, it is a terrible world out there, but at least, hey, I'm in here on the inside, I'm a Christian. Look down on the world, look up on us. Paul shows them that actually self-righteous religious people are just as guilty before God. That it didn't matter if you even grew up as a Jew and had all the Old Testament as your scripture with all his promises, or if you grew up as a a Gentile, as a non-Jew, a pagan without a clue about the God of the Bible. No, no, what really matters is, have you got a heart that loves God first above all else? And the problem we saw was that's a heart that only God can give you. In other words, there's nothing that I can do to stop God being very angry with me there's no life good enough no amount of Bible knowledge, no church attendance no even serving in the the youth worker on the sound team no amount of Christian family or Christian upbringing that will bail me out when I stand guilty before God but but just when you think Paul must have nailed his argument now, he imagines someone who shouts out They're going, yeah, yeah, but no but, Paul. What was the point of all that Jewish stuff then? I mean, how can God blame us? He's obviously made a mess of it. Yeah, but no but. So we've got two headings this morning. Yeah, but, then no but. They won't help you remember what I say, but I rather like them. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Yeah, but no but. But. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Circumcision was the the sign God gave to the Jews for the males to to show they were part of his people. Seems fair, isn't it? You say we're guilty. What was the point of all that then? Well, look what he says in verse 2. Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God." God. The Jews have got all of God's promises laid out in the Old Testament. And God is faithful to every promise he has made. It was a huge privilege. Just because they were faithless, that doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. It's like a kid who's told, look, you and your brother can go out and play in the garden when you've done your homework. But, but when his brother finishes his homework and, and gets to go out in the garden, but he has to stay in because he hasn't finished his homework, he goes, it's not fair. Well, of course it's fair. God has never been the problem with his promises with his word it's people who have always broken promise disobeyed God's word look at how he puts it in verse four not at all let God be true in every human being a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge or maybe prevail when you are judged You see, people are really quick to judge God. That's what this guy is doing. I mean, how how can a loving God let so much evil into the world? I mean, what right has he got to call us to account with all the evil out there? You know, how is it that he's got a right to judge me? All all the time we treat God as though we're innocent and he's guilty. But, But the problem is, by very nature, God has never spoken a lie. He's utterly faithful. He keeps every word he's promised. Whereas people, we're incapable of living life without, without lying, aren't we? I mean, put up your hand if you've never told a lie. I, I was really hoping someone would stick their hand up so I could go, yeah, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I came across an, an upturned bucket in our garden on the lawn. Bit odd, I thought. Lifted up the bucket. There was a reasonably sized hole and a stick beside it. Now, I'm not, I'm not lawn retentive, okay? If you see my lawn, you'll know why, yeah, but... but but we do have a non-digging rule in the lawn on the garden. And I expect that the excavator knew that, and that's why the bucket was there. So I turned around to my two youngest children who were standing on the patio and said, who dug the hole? They were standing beside each other. I swear, they both went like this. <laughs> now, that would be funny if that's not exactly what my wife and I do, yeah? You know, when, say, we lose the car keys... You had them last. It's the nature, isn't it? Of our hearts. We want to blame someone else. We tell lies. God doesn't, God doesn't fail to keep his promises. The problem isn't God. The problem is the, the unfaithful nature of the human heart. Yeah, yeah, but says the, 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 the person, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? that God is unjust in bringing wrath on us, I'm using a human argument. Paul's imaginary opponent is getting increasingly desperate. He tries to suggest that, look, God's not just in being angry on us because in the end, when I sin, it shows how just God is. That's a crazy argument, says Paul. Look at verse 7. Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? In other words, if I make God look good because I'm so bad, why does he still judge me? I mean, I make him look good, aren't I? Paul points out this argument is nuts. It'd be like a murderer claiming that he's done a service to society. Because now all the people who are not murderers can feel good about themselves. It's a ridiculous argument. I mean, which would would you rather have? A God who who didn't really mind that much about right and wrong, good and evil. A, A live and let live God who never took any action against anything. Or a perfectly just God who holds people to account according to his standards. Or if you, if you don't believe in God this morning, which sort of world would you like to live in? One where we could do anything we wanted with no repercussions, no justice, a world where the human heart ran amuck with no restraints, or a world where wrongdoing is punished?, it's really no, no one. We don't really want anarchy, do we? We want justice. Oh, we don't want justice for ourselves. No, 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 no. We want justice for our world. We like the idea of being in a world where we're never afraid. We just don't want to be held to account ourselves. I actually saw a bloke start to cross the street um, near the doctors at the end of Merritt Gardens this week. And he was with his dog. And he got about this far. And then he turned around and he went and he, he left the level crossing and walked across the road where there wasn't one. Do you know why? There were about five lads in hoodies coming towards him. You know, swaggering, playing their music loudly. And he was intimidated. We want a world where we feel safe, don't we? Imagine not having to lock the door of your house or zip up your bag with the wallet in when you're on the tube or walk down any street at any time. That's, That's the world we want. A world free of crime, of evil, of wrongdoing. But we don't want the things that we've done wrong to be revealed or to be judged. We, we constantly try and justify ourselves. So look, at, look at what it says in verse 8. Why not say, as some are slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. I mean, it's clearly madness, isn't it? Let us do evil so good may result. But I wonder if you've ever found yourself doing what I do from time to time, which is justifying your wrongdoing, that the thing even you're about to do with the idea, well, well, I know I'm forgiven. G- Jesus died for me. So, so it doesn't really matter. And you're thinking that because God loves you, he's not that bothered about the way you live. Effectually, tr- you know, treating Jesus as the, as the trump card who bails you out with God whilst you can get on and live life for yourself. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't be so crass as to say, let us do evil so good may result. But we can say to ourselves, well, God's free forgiveness is mine, so my sin doesn't matter. Effectively saying, I know it's a sin, but it's not that serious. It's God's job to forgive, and he looks really gracious and loving because I'm such a terrible sinner. It's the same hard attitude. Let us do evil. The good may result. And nothing could be further from the truth. You see, when it comes to our guilt before God, there are no buts. Here's our second heading, no buts. Look at verse nine with me. What shall we conclude then? Do do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. That's God's verdict on humanity. You see it, guilty. Doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, under the power of sin. It's the language of slavery. We are slaves to a master called sin. Now, we can sometimes think of sin as as the really bad stuff that we don't actually do, you know, like wife beating or drug dealing, or we can think of it as a bit of harmless fun on the side that's not really that that, that serious, you know, uh, that boring religious people disapprove of. So, if you're old like me, you remember the, the naughty but nice cream cake adverts in the 1980s with Les Dawson and people like that, Frankie Howard. Yeah? So, sin, it's, a bit, it's naughty but nice. Yeah? But, but there's nothing nice about sin. It's the attitude of selfishness that grips our heart, that means we ignore the God who made us and loves us, and we hurt the very people who love us the most. And in case there's any sort of Jew at this stage listening to Paul thinking, well, I'm I'm exempt from this, I'm superior, well, what Paul does is he lines up five quotes from the Old Testament to point out how all people are under the power of sin. See, all people under the power of sin. Do you see that repeated refrain in verse 10 to 12? No one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's not that we don't do any good. It's it's that we all have turned away from God. The heart of every human being since the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 has been to reject God's loving rule, not to seek God, but to seek self. Self-rule, self-fulfillment. You can find self-help sections in your local bookshop. They're enormous. Try and find the, the, the Christian section, doesn't exist. But the self-help section is huge. And, and if you don't, again, feel this is you, let, let me ask you this question. Who, who's got the right to tell you, not, not just what to do, but, but who you are? I guess our gut reaction is, well, no one's got the right to tell me what to do. No one's got the right to tell me who I am. That's the way we feel naturally, isn't it? That's the underlying message of our our culture. You must be most fulfilled and happiest being who you want to be, doing what you want to do. In fact, it could be psychologically harmful for you not to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. But, But the problem is, with that philosophy, we don't, we don't exactly live in a world of smiley, happy people. Smiley, happy, fulfilled people. We, we reject the God who, who's made us to enjoy loving relationship with him, to, to live under his kind and loving rule, for a life of trying to love ourselves and rule ourselves and, and make our dreams come true, and it just doesn't seem to be working. Because all life is under the power of sin. Did you see the repeated idea in verses 13 and 14? Their throats, their tongues, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths. It's all about words, isn't it? Our words are under the power of sin. Words are such, such powerful things. They, they make relationships, don't they? Words of kindness, compliment, laughter, joy, precious words. But but sadly, those aren't the only words that we use. Because words also break relationships. The the little lies. So actually, we're not even totally honest with the people closest to us. That the poison that comes from our lips when we're angry. Or or when we put others down. A poison that, that slowly kills trust. That seeps into hearts and causes deep pain. Was there anything ever so stupid said as sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me? Is that the most stupid thing? I'd rather have a broken leg than to have received some of the words that have hurt me. I'd have rather broken my own leg than to have spoken some of my words that have hurt others. The words spat out in a rage when we don't get our own way. The blunt words said with that clipped tone of exasperation, I'm I'm an expert at passive aggression. Well, I suppose I'll have to sort it out again. And sadly, words like this are only too common in our marriages, aren't they? It's, It's why we need things like a marriage enrichment morning. I am so glad that you will never hear everything that I've said to my wife this week. And you will never hear the tone of how I've said it. Words that that daily taint our workplaces. The office gossip, the put-down of a more junior colleague, the broken promise of someone we thought was our friend. You see, we're incapable of controlling something as small as our tongues. Our words show us that we're a people under the power of sin. But but our ways are no better. Now, that's what verses 15 to 17 are about. Your ways, feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they don't know. Now, now, I guess most of us won't have committed murder. I never say no one has. I have worked in churches where we've had ex-murderers. Okay? I don't know whether this is one or not. But I guess most of us haven't committed murder. But in general our anger just won't be controlled, will it? Our lives are littered with sadness where, if we're honest too often, we are the cause. I, uh, I was... Uh, you know how you do, you get on the BBC website, oh, that's an interesting article, oh, that's an interesting article, oh, that's an interesting article. I ended up watching a, a, a little film clip by the philosopher Alan de Botton, you have to say that carefully, and uh, he, he, this film clip, uh, the reason I watched it, it was entitled How to be happy in love and have few aroused... I thought it might be relevant for someone else. And he said this, as long as we think we, broadly, uh, we are broadly easy to live with, pretty great, and someone else is sort of lucky to be with us, we are perils for anyone to be around. We start to be kind when we realize that actually we're trouble for anyone to be with. We should be kind of grateful that anyone is putting up with us. That is the bedrock on which the tolerance of another person can be built. It's interesting, isn't it? An atheist observing life says, if you think that in general you're a good person and you're a blessing to the person you're in relationship with, you're a danger to yourself and them. It's at the point you realize you're a bad person, you're a liability, and it's a miracle anyone wants to hang around with you, that point you'll begin to be safe to hang out with. We need to get over ourselves. That The way of peace seems to elude us. But peace in the Bible is a life of wholeness and and harmony. A life that works. But tension, not harmony. Stress, not carefreeness. Pressure, not ease. That's our daily experience, isn't it? As we slave to satisfy self, constantly craving something better. Being uh, desperate to be happier and never quite able to create it. Meditation doesn't work. Mindfulness doesn't work. Materialism doesn't work. More legislation doesn't work. More education doesn't work. Minding your own business doesn't even work. All people are under the power of sin. All life, our words and our ways are under the power of sin. And all that, according to verse 18, is chosen is because we've chosen to be God rather than fear God. Now, now these quotes were written to to the Jewish people of the Old Testament, people under the law. But Paul uses them to show here that all people will be left without a word of defense when they stand before the judgment seat of God. There's verse 19 again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. See, each each Sabbath, as the Jews sang these psalms that are quoted here, they weren't just singing about their enemies, they were condemning themselves. And so verse 20 tells us, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the works of the law we become conscious of our sin. God's law is not designed to make us right with God. It's designed to show us how far short we fall. It's a diagnostic tool, not a cure. So so the law is more like going for an MRI scan than having a heart transplant. When you go for a scan, you know that you're not going to be cured. But you're hopeful they're going to find out what's wrong with you. But when you go for a heart transplant, you know they're going to try and cure you. And going through a diagnosis, it can be difficult, can't it? It can be distressing. Sometimes it's more difficult and distressing than going through the cure. But we need to see the truth about ourselves. No one is righteous. There is no excuse. And that's a serious problem. There's going to be a trial for everyone. The whole world is going to be asked to give an account of their lives. It's going to be in the future. When Jesus returns, God is going to judge through his son, the Lord Jesus. The charge will be that we're under sin. The evidence will be the secrets of our hearts. The standard will be matching God's perfect law. Real life will be revealed. Not who we think we are or who we feel we are, but who we really are and all we've really done. And the verdict on every human being will be guilty. The sentence will be God's wrath, his righteous anger and punishment. And we will only be able to stand there in silence. We will have no defense. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you believe this? Do you live like you believe this? I, I, I went to a rugby reunion. I have some guys I played rugby with 30 years ago yesterday at uh, Twickenham. And I, I was driving home and I suddenly thought, Daph, you're sitting, I was the only Christian there. You're sitting amongst a bunch of guys, knowing I was preparing the sermon, sitting amongst a bunch of guys who you believe stand guilty before God and they don't have any hope. And you sat there silently. Oh yeah, I tried to talk about Jesus a bit. A bit. But I talked about rugby a lot more. The, uh, the evangelist Rico Tice tells the story of uh, uh, a mate of his who he played rugby with, the rugby captain who wasn't a Christian and And uh, one day, a a mutual Christian friend said, oh, let's let's listen to one of these tapes. You can tell how old the story is. A tape of Rico preaching. And he put it on and listened to it with Dave, his non-Christian mate, um, of Rico preaching. And in it, Rico was explaining some of the truths of God's judgment. And as the tape went on, this non-Christian rugby player got quieter and quieter and quieter. And at the end, he said, how could Rico believe these things and call himself a friend of mine and not tell me? He wouldn't speak to him. He wouldn't speak to him for weeks afterwards. Do you live like this is true? If you believe it's true? But this, uh, if you're not a Christian, can I, can I tell you this isn't the end of the story? Because though we will all stand before God in his judgment room and the evidence will be the truth and we will be guilty and there's nothing we can do about it, though that's what we all face, There is good news about Jesus. That's what Lee and Sue said, isn't it? They didn't say, we want to bring up Chloe and Ethan to be good people. No, we want to bring up Chloe and Ethan to realize that we're bad people and they're bad people. They need Jesus. It's a brilliant testimony. That's exactly what they want to do. And that's exactly what Paul wants you to see. He wants you to see there is nothing that you can do to restore your relationship with God. But God has done everything in Jesus. Just let me give you a little trailer for next week. Look at verse 21 of our next week's passage. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. But but now, says Paul, a right relationship with God's been made known. Why? Because in another courtroom, not the courtroom of heaven, but a courtroom in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, people didn't stand on trial before God. No, God stood on trial before men. And he was silent, as we will be silent. But he wasn't silent because he was guilty. No, the evidence against him wasn't the truth. It was lies. And though he was not guilty but innocent, he was treated as though he was guilty. He was whipped and spat upon and beaten and crucified. And most horrifically of all, he chose to take in his body the punishment that we deserve for standing guilty before God. So that we who are guilty might actually be treated as though we're innocent. We are given Jesus' righteous standing before God and not the guilt that is ours by nature. We're given the perfect relationship of the Son of God with his Father in heaven, not the relationship of a guilty rebel who does neither love God nor live for him. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's free a gift of a right relationship with God for rebels if you will come and admit that when you stand before God according to his standards, you can say nothing. But you can hold out your hands as a guilty sinner and receive by God's grace the gift of forgiveness in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, that's what we want you to know. We want you to know that unconditional love of God's son given for you that you might be his child though you're a guilty rebel. We'd love you to come on Christianity Explored. We'd love you to talk with us afterwards. If there's anything I've said you'd like to talk or pray about, Richard and Eileen will be sitting down here at the end of the service. They'd love to talk and pray with you. And next week we'll be here in full how Jesus has done that beautiful thing at the cross, the thing that we can't do, made us right with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that like any loving parent, you are honest with us. And you don't point out our faults or the depth of our sin or the level of our guilt before you because you want to leave us in condemnation. You point it out because you want us to cling to Christ, your beautiful son, our beautiful savior. You want us to come to the cross, to come helpless and needy with only our sin to offer and to receive salvation. Please take us to the cross of Christ today and every day. For Jesus' name's sake.